1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to RBC's conference call for the first quarter 2020 financial results. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Nadine Hong, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. on. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Speaking today will be Dave Mackay, President and Chief Executive Officer, Rod Bolger, Chief Financial Officer, and Graham Hepworth, Chief Risk Officer. Then we'll open the call for questions. To give everyone a chance to ask a question, we ask that you limit your questions and then recue. We also have with us in the room, Neil McLaughlin, Group Head, Personal and Commercial Banking, Doug Guzman, Group Head, Wealth Management, Insurance, and INTS, and Derek Nelner, Group Head, Capital Markets. As noted on slide one, our comments may contain forward-looking statements which involve assumptions and have inherent risks and uncertainties. Actual results could differ materially. I would also remind listeners that the bank assesses its performance on a reported and adjusted basis and considers both to be useful in assessing underlying business performance. With that, I'll turn it over to Dave.
2: Thanks, Nadine. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. We had a great start to the year, delivering record quarterly earnings of $3.5 billion. We reported record results in Canadian banking and capital markets and very strong results in wealth management despite interest rate headwinds, and a good quarter in insurance. Our results were driven by strong volume growth across our leading client franchises, lower PCL, and prudent expense management. We continued to win market share while maintaining a risk profile at the lower end of our appetite and generating an ROE of 17.6%, a premium relative relative to our global peers. I'm pleased to announce a $0.03 increase to our dividend, bringing our quarterly dividend to $1.08 per share. Our strong capital generation and robust 12% CT1 ratio are proof of our disciplined capital deployment strategy, which is one of RBC's core strengths. Along with the dividend increase, we bought back 7 million shares this quarter, supporting our focus on delivering long-term value for our shareholders. While share buybacks will always be an effective and flexible lever to improve returns, allocating capital for net income growth will continue to be our primary focus. Our leading scale and diversity of revenue streams enables us to invest concurrently in technology, sales capacity and client value, positioning us to succeed in this period of secular change and macro uncertainty. In addition we constantly review our portfolio businesses to ensure they provide long-term sustainable growth opportunities and meet our return hurdle rates. Along with repositioning part of our international custody business as announced in Q4, we entered into agreements to sell all of our banking operations in the Eastern Caribbean this quarter. Similarly, we actively manage our capital markets loan book to build sustainable relationships and returns. Before moving to segment results, I want to touch on the macro environment for a minute. While the start of the fiscal year saw a reduction in global trade tensions, which was positively impacting market sentiment and yield curves, recent uncertainty related to the coronavirus is reigniting downside risk to the global economic outlook, given the potential for disruption to global supply chains. We are monitoring the situation closely. While we have limited direct exposure to the regions impacted hardest by the virus, we are concerned for those affected by the recent outbreak. Turning to our domestic business, the Bank of Canada's tone has become more cautious given recent economic data showing weaker business investment, exports and consumer spending despite positive business sentiment and low unemployment levels. A key strength of the Canadian economy is housing. We continue to see strengthening in Toronto's housing market with low interest rates and constrained supply pushing prices higher. We are also seeing signs of a recovery in Vancouver and high activity levels continuing in Montreal and Ottawa. With household demand being supported by economic and population growth, including immigration, we would support measures to address an increasingly limited housing supply. Against this backdrop, I want to update you on our business segment performance. Canadian Banking reported another record quarter with net income of over $1.6 billion. We continue to leverage our multi-year investments in sales capacity and digital capabilities to drive strong client-driven volumes. Over the last year, we added over $60 billion in total volumes across loans and deposits. With respect to deposits, our growth in checking accounts accelerated to 6% over last year, as a key Canadian banking product, this has been a core focus for us as we continue to deepen relationships with our clients. 18% of RBC clients have all four transaction accounts, all four of transaction accounts, credit cards, investments, and borrowing products with RBC, higher than the peer average of 12%. Along with a personal checking account, Canadian residential mortgages are a core long term product, and we're seeing strong client acquisition and retention. Over the last year, our leading distribution and differentiated value proposition has added over $21 billion in mortgage volumes to our market-leading franchise, and nearly 95% of our mortgage clients have more than one product with RBC. While our mortgage growth has impacted Canadian banking's total margins, Canadian mortgages remain a high ROE product given their low-risk weighting, generating returns well in excess of our medium-term ROE objective we're still originating prime Canadian retail credit. The credit risk indicators and profile of our new mortgage originations are as strong as our existing portfolio. With strong offers and integrated campaigns, we've deepened the value proposition of our proprietary loyalty program, and we're seeing higher credit card acquisitions year-over-year. We remain committed to meeting our client acquisition target of 2.5 million new Canadian banking clients by 2023. With net new client acquisitions up 30% from last year, we have had a good start to 2020. Turning to wealth management, we had a third consecutive quarter with earnings over $600 million and revenue over $3 billion, benefiting from both strong markets and net sales. In global asset management, we added another 40 basis points to our leading Canadian retail market share over the last 12 months. With an uncertain macroeconomic and geopolitical backdrop, our clients continue to come to us for trusted advice and exceptional service. With 82% of AUM outperforming the benchmark on a 3-year basis, we added to our track record of superior net flows, generating a further 11 billion of retail sales, of retail net sales over the last 12 months. In Canadian wealth management, We continue to grow our top-tier distribution, adding more than 50 investment advisors over the last 12 months, building on the capabilities of our existing team of over 2,000 advisors. Going forward, we expect to continue to leverage our distribution scale to drive sustained growth. Our U.S. wealth management franchise continues to perform well, despite headwinds from lower interest rates. We continue to see very strong double-digit volume growth across AUA, AUM, loans and deposits as we execute on our accelerated organic growth strategy. With double-digit growth in deposits, we are seeing the results of a wide range of initiatives we spoke about in the first half of 2019, including the rollout of our new Treasury management platform and investments into exactuals, film track, and Datafaction. A priority for us is to grow our U.S. private client group and city national franchises giving funding synergies and opportunities for increased client referrals, including over $1 billion of mortgage flow through our U.S. wealth management channels. Similar to Canadian banking, mortgages are an important low-risk anchor product that allows us to build deeper, long-term relationships with our city national clients. We're also increasingly focused on leveraging our strengths to boost city national's digital bank offerings. We continue to expect strong loan and deposit growth given the multi-year investments in sales capacity. Our capital markets business delivered record earnings this quarter, more than 100 million higher than our previous record. We benefited from the closing of a landmark of landmark transactions including BBNT's merger with Suntrust, Apollo's acquisition of Cox Media assets, and Broadcom's acquisition of Symantec assets. Our strong results this quarter propelled us to ninth in the global league tables. The quarter provided a more favorable environment for the industry relative to last year. Narrowing credit spreads and low interest rates created a favorable environment for companies looking for financing. Likewise, dovish global central banks and low equity volatility helped provide a constructive backdrop for equity markets and deal flow. Our investments over a number of years in strengthening our talent has been an important driver in the rising strength of our capital markets franchise. The benefits of which can be seen by increased roles and global mandates. Our investment banking pipeline remains healthy, reflecting reasonably strong market conditions. However, the conversion of deals to realize revenue remains dependent on market and regulatory conditions, which could be volatile through the year given the uncertainty around the geopolitical landscape and concerns over the coronavirus. Global markets had an impressive quarter with strong performance in our FIC business, reflecting healthy client engagement and the strength of our client-focused franchise. Overall, we delivered a very strong quarter and are starting 2020 from a position of strength. We have scale, leading market share, and momentum across our core franchises. We are well-positioned to continue providing value-added advice and service to our existing clients, while attracting new clients and gaining market share across our segments. While we face challenging headwinds from lower interest rates, moderating global growth, and normalizing credit conditions, we remain committed to balancing our investments and continuing to create long-term value for our clients and shareholders. With that, I'll pass it over to Rod.
3: Thanks, Dave, and good morning, everyone. Starting on slide five, we had record earnings of $3.5 billion, up 11% from last year. Diluted EPS of $2.40 was up 12% year-over-year. I'll start with a few comments on cost management. Expenses were up 8% year-over-year. However, most of the growth was driven by staff-related costs such as variable and stock-based compensation, which was commensurate with strong revenue growth in capital markets and wealth management. Excluding these, expenses were up 3% year-over-year total headcount across the bank declined from last quarter as we remained vigilant on controlling costs and driving efficiencies. Moving on to capital on slide six, as Dave noted, with a CET1 ratio of 12%, we remain well positioned to fund organic growth opportunities in our leading franchises and to return capital to
4: our shareholders.
3: Our strong earnings allowed us to generate 38 basis points of internally generated capital, more than offsetting the combined impact of previously disclosed accounting and regulatory changes. Strong client-driven RWA growth in Canadian banking, city national, and capital markets, as well as the impact of lower discount rates in determining pension and post-employment benefit obligations, was partially offset by normal course parameter and methodology updates. We also distributed $2.2 billion to our common shareholders in the form of share buybacks and dividends this quarter. Our share count is now at its lowest level since 2010. Moving to our business segment performance on slide 7, personal and commercial banking reported earnings of nearly $1.7 billion. Canadian banking net income of over $1.6 billion was up 5% from a year ago. Our commitment to exceptional client experience and innovative digital offerings continue to resonate with clients. Strong volume growth across our Canadian banking businesses led to 5% year-over-year growth in total revenue. We are seeing increased momentum in our mortgage portfolio, up a strong 9% year-over-year. Total real estate secured lending was up 7%, net of lower HELOC balances. Similar to last quarter, mortgage volumes were driven by strong origination volumes of 40% year-over-year and strong client retention of over 91%. Following double-digit growth in commercial lending over the last year, as expected, we saw moderation in the growth rate across a number of sectors. However, we still added over $5.5 billion of volumes. GIC growth rates moderated somewhat to a still strong 10% year-over-year as our clients shifted into mutual funds. Higher fee income this quarter was largely driven by strong double-digit growth in assets under administration, helping offset some pressure from lower margins. Net interest margin declined four basis points from last quarter, largely from compressed spreads from competitive pricing on both mortgages and GICs. Should we see continued pricing competition and strong mortgage growth through the spring housing season, our NIM could compress a further three to five basis points for the rest of the year. Expense growth was contained at 4% year-over-year, driving positive operating leverage of 0.7%. We saw a reduction in headcount through attrition and continue to reduce branch square footage. We still expect positive operating leverage for the full year, but expect to see increased pressure in the back half of the year from upcoming changes in the credit card landscape and continued pressures on loan and deposit spreads. We do not expect any material impact to earnings from the sale of our banking operations in the Eastern Caribbean that Dave highlighted earlier. Turning to slide eight, wealth management earnings of $623 million were up 4% year over year. Adjusting for the favorable accounting adjustment related to Canadian wealth management in Q1 2019, earnings were up 9% year over year, largely in line with recent quarters. Both Global Asset Management, AUM, and Canadian Wealth Management, AUA, were up double digits year over year, largely due to North American equity markets rebounding from challenging market conditions last year. We continued to gain market share in global asset management, adding nearly $3 billion of Canadian retail net sales this quarter. While equity markets drove market appreciation, the majority of our retail flows were long-term fixed income and balanced solutions. In U.S. wealth management, revenues were up 12% year-over-year in U.S. dollars. Assets under administration grew a strong 16% year-over-year, reflecting both market appreciation and net sales, partly due to our successful recruitment of experienced financial advisors. Net income was relatively flat year-over-year as robust volume growth was offset by the cumulative impact of the three Fed rate cuts from July to October, as well as by higher costs to support organic business growth. Loan growth of 19% at City National continued to be led by commercial lending, However, we also saw continued very strong mortgage growth at 24 percent year-over-year. On a geographic basis, we are seeing an increased contribution from our East Coast expansion, with loans in the region up 40 percent year-over-year. Expansion in new markets contributed a quarter of total loan growth. Total deposit growth at City National was up 19 percent year-over-year, or 11 percent excluding sweep balances. City National NIM was down 17 basis points quarter-over-quarter, largely due to the average Fed Fed funds rate declining 45 basis points. Given the asset-sensitive nature of City National's balance sheet and continued competitive pressures on deposit pricing, we expect margins to tick lower throughout the remainder of 2020, albeit at a much slower pace. Moving on to insurance on slide nine, net income of $181 million was up 9% from last year mainly due to new longevity reinsurance contracts, partly offset by the lower impact from reinsurance contract renegotiations. While insurance first quarter earnings are seasonally lower from a strong Q4, earnings this Q1 were higher relative to prior first quarter results. Expenses in this segment are well controlled and remain fairly consistent at around $150 million over the last two years, even as we grew our revenue. Looking forward, we continue to target modest earnings growth for the full year. This segment continues to generate a high ROE, which is well in excess of our bank-wide medium-term objectives. Investor and Treasury Services results are highlighted on slide 10. Earnings of $143 million were down 11% from last year. Total revenue decreased, mainly due to lower client deposit revenue, largely because of the short-term interest rate environment. Asset services revenue was lowered due to reduced client activity and continued pricing pressures, reflecting secular market and industry headwinds. Recall, funding and liquidity revenue is seasonally higher in the first quarter, driven by increased money market opportunities. The business also experiences some earnings compression when we see the flattening of the yield curve. Going forward, we expect seasonally lower earnings next quarter and hope to see increasing levels of profitability towards the end of 2020 and into 2021 as we work through the repositioning of the business that we announced in Q4. Turning to capital markets in slide 11, the segment generated record debt income of $882 million, up 35 percent from last year, benefiting from strong revenue growth as an unusually elevated number of transactions closed in the quarter. Earnings also benefited from lower PCL as the prior year included provisions related to one account in the utilities sector. Also, capital markets generated positive operating leverage of 4.7%. Expense growth outside of the performance-based compensation was modest amidst record revenue. Capital markets ROE expanded this quarter as we generated higher revenue off a lower RWA footprint. Corporate investment banking revenue was up 23% year-over-year as we realized revenue from the closing of significant transactions in line with guidance provided in our year-end call. The constructive market conditions that they've highlighted also drove higher debt and equity origination results, especially in North America. We increased our market share in the global fee pools across M&A, DCM, and ECM. Global markets revenue was up a strong 18 percent from last year, largely due to higher fixed income trading revenue across all regions. We had particular strength in credit trading, benefiting from secondary flow, from strong debt underwriting results and narrowing credit spreads. Rates trading also performed well in a volatile interest rate environment. In addition, we deployed balance sheet towards our repo business. Equities trading had a solid quarter despite lower volatility. And recall that Q1 last year was a record quarter for this business. Overall, we had a strong start to the year. We continue to focus on our strategy of creating more value for our clients and shareholders while driving premium growth in a prudent manner. And with that, I'll turn it over to Graham.
5: Thank you, Rod, and good morning, everyone. I'll begin my remarks starting on slide 13. This quarter, our provisions on performing loans of 83 million or five basis points were flat quarter over quarter, albeit at the higher end of our expected range of three to five basis points. This mainly reflects portfolio growth in the quarter, especially in our cards portfolio, which typically sees an increase following the holiday season. It also reflects changes in our macroeconomic forecast, where moderately higher long-term interest rates, weaker oil and gas markets, and higher unemployment rates were offset by favourable housing trends in Canada. On the other hand, our provisions on impaired loans of 338 million, or 21 basis points, were down 6 basis points from last quarter and were below our expected range of 25 to 30 basis points. This is mainly due to lower provisions in personal and commercial banking and wealth management. Let me now provide some additional color on PCL for some of our businesses. In Canadian banking, PCL and loans decreased by 33 million from last quarter, largely reflecting lower provisions on impaired loans in our commercial portfolio across a number of sectors. This is partially offset by an increase in provisions on performing loans this quarter, mainly in our cards and commercial portfolios due to the factors I noted earlier. In Caribbean banking, PCL and loans decreased by 18 million from last quarter due to recoveries in our commercial portfolio and lower provisions in our residential mortgage portfolio. In City National, PCL and loans decreased by $40 million from last quarter, reflecting provisions we took last quarter in our consumer discretionary sector and higher recoveries this quarter. Lastly, while PCL and loans in capital markets were stable quarter over quarter, we did have higher provisions in both the oil and gas and other services sectors. Turning to slide 14, gross impaired loans of $2.9 billion was down $40 million from last quarter. In City National, we had higher impairments, mainly due to new formations in our consumer staples and discretionary sectors, partially offset by repayments across a number of sectors this quarter. In Canadian banking, while we had higher impairments this quarter, the level of new formations in both our retail and commercial portfolios and the level of write-offs in our commercial portfolio have declined from last quarter. In Caribbean banking, we had higher recoveries, which I noted earlier, and lower allowances in our residential mortgage portfolio, which is partially offset by an increase in new formations this quarter. In capital markets, we continue to see elevated impairments in the oil and gas sector this quarter as the sector remains under pressure. However, consistent with last quarter, we are seeing the trend moderating with higher repayments and fewer new formations this quarter. While impairment levels in capital markets in City National remained elevated this quarter, the need for material provisions were mitigated by the strength of our underwriting both in terms of collateral and guarantees supporting our loans. Turning to slide 16, PCL across most of our retail portfolios, including our residential mortgage portfolio, were generally stable quarter over quarter. We did see ongoing weakness in our unsecured portfolios in certain regions. In Alberta, unemployment levels remained elevated at 7.3% due to ongoing weakness in the oil and gas sector, which most impacted our personal lending portfolio. In Quebec, the impact of the minimum credit card payments implemented last August continued to lead to higher insolvencies, mainly in the form of consumer proposals impacting both our cards and unsecured lending portfolios. While the impact of rising consumer proposals was most pronounced in Alberta and Quebec, we do see a modest degree of weakness in other regions as well. To conclude, our retail portfolios continue to be generally stable and areas of weakness have been manageable. Our wholesale portfolios continue to benefit from our strong underwriting practices, industry diversification and geographic mix. However, ongoing challenges such as the weakness in the oil and gas sector and global geopolitical risks, as well as the emerging concerns related to COVID-19 and rail blockades do create considerable uncertainty that we are monitoring closely and actively managing. Overall, while our portfolios have performed slightly better than expected this quarter, in light of the noted uncertainty, we are maintaining our previous guidance on PCL. With that, operator, let's open the lines for Q&A.
1: Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your hands up before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star one at this time. If you have a question, there will be a brief pause while the participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. Our first question is from Ibrahim Punawala with Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Please go ahead. Good morning. I, I, I guess my
6: question is on capital allocation, and just trying to understand. Uh, whether we should expect the CET1 to build from the 12% uh, in the context of, I think, Dave's comments around uh, priority on capital allocation remains net income growth. And what I'm trying to understand is uh, in the world where organic growth remains relatively steady state, uh, do we assume buybacks ratchet up or is your motivation on, uh, to do a deal rise? If we can talk about that, that would be helpful.
2: Maybe Abram, I'll start and then I'll hand it over to Rod for questions. So uh, our strategy on capital allocation hasn't changed over the last couple of years. You, you see the strong organic growth that we're generating. We're investing in further growth, which will require capital. So I think from that perspective, it becomes the hot, best way to drive uh, shareholder returns and we'll continue to allocate capital there. You saw us buy back uh, shares at a greater rate in the last quarter in, re- in returning capital to shareholders and uh, you can expect that we'll use you know, that tool as an ongoing uh, capability to, to, uh, to manage our, our capital base and our, and our returns for shareholders. So I don't think there's any real change in strategy. Uh, we continue to look for opportunities to grow our business inorganically and we've got very strong criteria for that and now the, the time is not right or the opportunity is not right. So there, there's nothing in the pipeline right now that would uh, cause us to allocate capital uh, along those lines. So I think that is generally a consistent perspective of, you know, for us, their strong momentum uh, in organic growth and driving shareholder value from it, we're going to continue to run this playbook. G-
6: got it. And I, I guess, Dave or Rod, uh, should we expect a meaningful buildup from the 12% CET1 levels or? If you, or you're reluctant to do that, just your thought process there.
3: Yeah, I think it's right. I think Ibrahim, if you go back a couple of years, you know we were 10.6 percent we in mid 2017. Yep. By by mid 2018, we're kind of at the 11 percent. Even a year ago, uh, you know we were at the 115 percent, 11.4 percent in Q1 and 19, and so we got we built up to 12 percent, given some of the macroeconomic uncertainty that Dave was was talking about. And we're very comfortable at 12%. When we run all of our stress tests, uh, 12% gives us adequate buffer uh, for even a a most severe uh, scenario. So we are quite comfortable and do not see a need for it to uh, go up above it. It might go up. You know, there's there's always 10 basis points up or down on a given quarter, depending on how RWA comes out or interest rates with the pension discount rate. uh, But we don't see a need to build from here.
1: Got it. That was helpful. I'll take you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from Minnie Groman with the Coolmark Securities. Please go ahead.
5: Hi, good morning. I'm wondering what uh, you expect the impact of uh, the changes to the stress test on insured mortgages to be, and then if you could also comment on um,
7: what uh, a change, a similar change um, to uninsured mortgage stress tests would be as well.
0: Uh, thanks for the question, Neil. Um, I guess maybe the, the first point we make on the stress test that uh, we've said in the past, we've been, you know, quite supportive of of the policies and by both both the uh, the government uh, and the regulatory changes, you know, I think our first priority is to really have a, you know, a strong housing market. With that said, you know, the, the change uh, that was announced recently, we view it as actually quite um, having quite a minimal impact. Our analysis so far looks like it would be about 25 to 30 basis points reduction in the qualifying rate. That will really translate into a, a fairly small increase in purchasing power for the average borrower, probably in the neighborhood of about $20,000, $25,000 on, on an average mortgage. So, you know, I think right now the focus still, you see a lot of commentary in the marketplace, is around supply. And I think the lack of supply in the major urban markets is um, is still you know the real focus for, for where the policy needs to go.
5: And if the rule, it looks like the rule will be extended to
8: the uninsured market. Um, do you think that'll have a, a bigger impact?
0: Um, I wouldn't. I think it would have. At this point, we, have, we we would think it would have the exact same impact.
8: Okay. And then, just as a related
5: question, um, your. Now consistently growing mortgages well above the market, and I'm wondering is is there is there a gap between you and the market where you would start to get concerned and and what would that gap be
0: um Well, I think in terms of the market there um, you know there was a player a couple of years ago that was uh, originating you know at, at an exceptionally high clip um, and I would also look back in 2018 we were not we, we wouldn't say we were at our best in terms of running the mortgage business, so we've commented. In the past, after 2018, the back half of that, that year, we did a full end-to-end review and we're now really seeing the gains from that review right from um, additional sales power with more me- uh, mortgage specialists on the ground meeting with customers, um, right through to you know our operational processes, how we underwrite, and specifically um, how we're turning around and getting back to customers. So, we'll, so one of the things that's been a big improvement, is just turnaround times and uh, and really having a customer centricity. So those would be the levers we've pulled. Graham mentioned and Dave mentioned uh, as well in his comments, you know, our origination profile, you know, we've not at all gone down the risk curve. Uh, We have, you know, exactly the same FICO profile and LTV uh, profiles that we've had. So, um, you know, at this point we're feeling, um, you know, we're feeling really good about what we're originating. Some of what you're also seeing is that activity is up, and uh, in stressing the first quarter, you're seeing home, price, home prices jumping has also uh, led to some increases. So that's really, you know, I guess, the underlying um, you know, rationale for our performance. And you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what the back half of the year looks like.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from Steve Terrier with 8 Capital. Please go ahead. <laughs> Thanks. I had a question
8: on capital markets, but maybe Neil, since we have you, just a couple of quick follow-ups. Um, could you speak just to the mix of HELOC versus mortgages? Like, is that has that come as a function of, you know, some of the some of the considerations since two thousand and eighteen? Is it something proactive? Chris, i going to limit
2: you to one question. So, do you want to ask a capital markets question or a retail question? <laughs> uh, you know, why don't you I'll, ask I'll, a capital I'll, markets?
8: All right. Fair enough. Um, the the fixed income and rate trading, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the strength there, uh, but it, it's pretty close to 2x run rate levels. Uh, and, you know, looking at the U.S. peers and what they did, uh, FIC was up, you know, 40 or 50 percent, it looks like. So it does seem to be on another level of growth. So maybe, Derek, you could talk a bit about the drivers there and maybe remind us about the mix of, of credit versus rates at, uh, in, within your portfolio
4: versus you know, some of your competitors. Sure, thanks Steve, uh, appreciate the question. Um, I think if you, obviously from a starting point, if you look at the environment in the quarter, it, it, it was a very strong environment for the industry overall. And as you noted, uh, a number of our U.S. peers that reported uh, saw increases in that business. So we did have a, a strong environment that we were working within. Uh, If if I break that down into a few different components, obviously the low rates and the tightening of credit spreads we saw drove a very strong new issue environment that drove higher primary origination for us really across our various geographies. On the back of that, then, we did see uh, heightened client trading activity, uh, building on the DCM issuance as well, just given the strong secondary markets in general. So that drove very good uh, ongoing secondary trading revenue for us in credit and in rates. I would say the third driver was an increased focus on uh, our corporate and FI uh, risk solutions group, so working on interest rate, foreign exchange, hedging and I think that's really been a function of just driving improved collaboration across our businesses and across our geographies. as well, I would say, behind our trading businesses, the team's made a number of investments over the last year in people, uh, in some systems, and Pranky I think, has just brought uh, very good execution and risk management uh, that's being reflected in the trading results that you're seeing this quarter.
8: And has that, for the most part, carried on into the first few weeks of, of February?
4: Well, obviously, the market environment uh, in terms of low rates and credit spreads remaining tight has has continued. Um, to the extent that continues in place, we, we expect that will be a, a positive backdrop for us and others. Um, but as Dave and Rod have mentioned, you know there certainly are some potential risks on the horizon, and so you know we'll just continue to monitor that carefully and see how it impacts our client trading flow. I would just uh, maybe finally add related to one of your questions, Um, we are carefully managing the risk profile of the trading book and as you'll see in one of the slides, uh, our VAR for the quarter was actually down, so we don't don't see the improved results being driven by any change to our our risk profile or risk appetite.
2: Great. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Please re-queue for your retail question. We'll try to get through this.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Gabriel Deschein with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead.
4: Morning. My uh, question is for Graham. Uh, thanks for the, uh, you know, the outlook uh, commentary on the factors that could affect your uh, your, your provisioning. I, I, I'm wondering if, if uh, maybe you can fine-tune that guidance. You know, COVID-19, uh, rail blockade, will that keep your, uh, you know, loss rate on performing loans at the upper end of that that range or maybe even above and are you seeing any you know maybe uh issues on the in the non-performing due to the rail blockades probably uh uh, showing up
5: yeah thanks gabriel it's graham i'll try and address a few points around uh, COVID 19 and the rail blockades um i'd say our risk focus has been on kind of three elements there um one first and foremost is just the health and safety of our, our employees um, and then ensuring that we have the oper- operational continuity and resiliency to, to work through this period and, and work through a period where it could potentially get worse. Um, so that uh, there's been some great leadership by our teams there, and, and uh, working with external bodies to, to <clears throat> deal with these challenges. Um, and then we look at the financial side of it. Uh, you know, in terms of the direct risk, there we are not uh, an operator player in, in mainland China, so we have really no direct exposure uh, to, to what's happening in the most acute part of this in China itself. Um, and so that really brings us back to kind of the, the probably the, the area we are most focused on, which is that kind of secondary risk um, as a consequence of, of what's happening. And there's really two elements there that we're kind of focusing on. One is the impact of uh, of uh, the Chinese consumer uh, kind of disappearing for a period here, and then the second part would be the the supply chain impact with China as the manufacturer to the world. Um, <clears throat> right now, I'd say you know we're we're monitoring that. We're looking at evaluating the the sectors that we think are most uh, impacted. Uh, we're engaging with our clients, but the reality is this is, you know, too early, too soon to really have a view as to the real impact here. Um, it's going to really depend on the duration of this and, and the severity going forward. Um, and right now, that's that's highly uncertain. We're not seeing any um, impacts in our portfolio at this point in time, and so, so really, as I said, we're just uh, monitoring for potential um, at this point. Uh, you did comment on stage one and two, and whether it's COVID-19 or or the rail blockades. Um, that would be the place it would manifest itself first, and so that would be something we'll be considering in, in uh, Q2. Um, but right now, say, as I said, it's too uncertain and it's too early to provide any guidance as to how material that could be. And then the rail blockades—are you seeing anything in a stage three uh, mm-hmm. near-term horizon? No, I, I, my comments would apply both the COVID-19 okay. and the rail blockades. It's just it's too too soon to uh, to see impact. They're talking to clients and certainly clients are being impacted, but it really depends on the duration of this and whether it has any staying power or not. Thank you. I might reek you.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Sumit Maholtra with Scotia Capital. Please go ahead.
7: Thank you. Good morning. My question is for, for Rod. It's going to relate to uh, margin and mix in City National. When uh, the bank bought that business a few years ago, uh, I have here, according to my notes, the the mixture of the loan book was was about 80% floating rate or, or adjustable. Uh, has that mix changed significantly since, uh, since since Royal took over the business? And, and relatedly, I think your adjective, Rod, was that you expect margins to to tick lower. Obviously, we've seen a, a substantial move over the course of the past year as we've had three rate hikes. Is is the more moderate outlook for, for margin compression based on, on your view on what the Fed does or is the variability of this, this book based more on, uh, let's call it market rates like, like CEDAR as opposed to the Fed?
3: Yeah, Simon, thanks for that. Um, so I I believe my comments were that we expect a, a continued decrease in Q1 because of the Fed decreases. The two of them in our fiscal fourth quarter had to flow through for the full quarter, including uh, the one in October. Uh, and then we thought it would tick lower from there, and we continue to, to, to see that. We saw obviously the the pronounced decrease of 17 basis points quarter over quarter in Q1. Uh, we expect that to moderate. Right now, if you look at the Fed futures, you know there's a 86 uh, percent. This is as of yesterday afternoon, 86 percent chance of a Fed cut by July. Uh, that gets priced into the Fed futures, and so therefore that gets priced into our uh, modeling into the uh, into the out quarters. Uh, you know, so it might be three, three to five basis points on the Fed funds, which is not going to impact us as much. We still have a majority of our loans on the variable rate, as you cited. Uh, but all, part of this is also mix. Uh, so, you know, we've been growing that mortgage book in the 20 over 20% range, uh, which tends to have a lower margin uh, than some of the other products. Uh, also, it's it's funding sources. So yes, we've had very strong deposit growth. But, you know, the, when, when City National was acquired four-plus years ago, the majority of the funding was in non interest bearing deposits. And as we've continued to grow the loan book double digits, uh, the mix of non interest bearing deposits, you know, was over 50 percent as recently as first quarter last year. It's, you know, mid-40s now. So as that shifts a little bit, uh, it will have a modest uh, impact. On your your NIM and cause you know a few basis points of NIM compression here and there, but overall you're we're we're adding new profitable client relationships, strong client relationships, bringing more product and more services uh, from a from a stronger platform, both with, from City National's platform as well as RBC's platform. Uh, so this is all part of the strategy, and you know we can't control the Fed funds, uh, but we're still very comfortable with the business that we're adding.
7: And just to be clear, I'll, I'll stop here. Uh, your, your comments on what Fe, Fed funds futures, as far as pricing for your commercial portfolio is concerned, uh, is it is it CDOR that's the the governing factor, or, or is it specific movements by the Fed that that drive that? Meaning market rates or, or actual Fed fund movements, for the most it's, part.
3: Well, well, you most most lending in the U.S. is based off of of LIBOR-based product yeah, at, at this yeah. point until, until that changes. Uh, but but that is influenced by Fed funds, and so it might be more direct in other countries uh, than it is in the U.S. But there still is a, a correlation there.
7: Appreciate it. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital. Please go ahead.
8: Hi. Good morning. Just. Thinking about the U.S. wealth management business, we've seen some changes by some of your peers. I mean, Goldman has come out and stated they want to be bigger mass affluent, we see Morgan Stanley going into E-Trade. And I, and I think Royal's focus has been mostly high net worth. Just want to get a sense of the strategy for that wealth business. And I think we always talk a lot, mostly about the banking side, but maybe just you know, the strategy for the, the wealth side of the business. And it, Does that have to pivot here as
2: well? Yeah, thanks for the question. I'll take it. Uh, Certainly as we think about our strategy and, and, the, and how we want to grow the business and how we want the balance sheet to look at a $100 billion bank in the U.S. versus the $50 billion bank it is today. Now, as Rod alluded to and we talked in our comments, we are shifting to uh, you know, a high net worth consumer balance sheet as a different balance from largely a commercial-driven cash management organization with a, cons- with a wealth management cross-sell. Hence, we know we're really focused on products like mortgage and, and cross-selling into core checking, and then cross-selling into advisory and wealth management products. So that strategy continues to build out. We're opening branches in New York and expanding into Washington and Nashville, as you've heard us tell that story. And that that growth is accelerated. At the same time, you know, we're the loan book has been growing faster than the deposit book. So growing our deposit strategy has become of paramount importance. So you'll see us likely launch a direct-to-consumer bank in the United States sometime at the end of this year, early next year, really focused on a higher net worth customer, uh, not just similar to some of our our competitors in the U.S., what they've done. We have a number of strategies to looking at that to move it from high beta to mid-beta type uh, relationships, and I think that strategy will help us fund our longer-term growth. So as we evolve in the US, we shift from a largely commercial cross-sold into wealth to a balance between kind of a, a high net worth, ultra high net worth client. We'll move down a little bit down market into and kind I'm of super affluent uh, and look at the direct to consumer strategy filling in behind there. So you'll see us kind of bring in some, some new capability around that to make sure that we're able to continue to grow both our loans and deposits at a strong ratio that you're seeing today. So that would be the shift for us and we feel good about the organic strategy versus having to go out and acquire deposits through an acquisition.
9: Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please go ahead.
10: Good morning. Uh, probably for Graham. When you look at the performing loan PCLs, the, the numbers have been small from the very beginning from when these um, when these new standards came to be. What I'm thinking about is when when you test the models, when you run scenarios through the models, what sort of, uh, what do you have to build in in terms of unemployment or an outlook for rates or oil and gas or, or any variable really to make these numbers meaningful and meaningful to me would be something not, not five or five basis points, more like 15 or 20 basis points. What sort of environment do we need to, to see to make these numbers meaningful?
5: Um, thanks, Mario. It's, a, it's a good question. I, I think we, uh, a couple of things that I responded there. So to some extent we actually already do build some variability into that. We, uh, as part of our, our performing loan analysis, we build in five different scenarios um, into that. There's the base case and the pessimistic, which we provided some disclosure on historically. But in addition to those, we do run two other scenarios: that uh, one that focuses on kind of a, a much more depressed oil and gas uh, environment, and one that focuses on a much more depressed uh, housing environment. Um, and uh, you know, and so those are factored in, and we weight those accordingly because we do view those as lower probability events. And so when we bring those into play. That is why our overall allowance is, is, you know, materially higher than our our base case would articulate. Um, You know, as as the environment shifts, you know, when unemployment moves with that, certainly unemployment uh, interest rates would be uh, some of the bigger factors that that would drive that allowance. Um, But, uh, you know, the sensitivity of that is really going to be dependent on the portfolio um, and and dependent on the business mix that, that, that we're looking at. Um, but uh, I don't think today we've uh, really disclosed uh, more specific than than what you'd see in our disclosures at Q4.
10: So if I could just paraphrase, if, if Royal's business mix were to shift toward, uh, say, aggressively into leverage lending, I'm not suggesting that's what's happening, but if the business mix were to shift into something that was a lot riskier and you moved your weightings uh, toward the those unfavorable scenarios meaningfully because you saw a big deterioration coming – is that the scenario? Are those the scenarios or conditions under which those performing loan PCLs would rise meaningfully?
5: Well, there's, a, there's a lot of different. It's, it's uh, if we adjusted our base case in a meaningful way, that would drive it. And as I said, unemployment would be one of the biggest factors there, just because of the sheer size of, of our, our retail business. Um, businesses like cards are inherently more volatile than other businesses. So again, the factors there will be driving that will be things like unemployment. Um, On the wholesale side, it is uh, factors like interest rates uh, and actual market performance, uh, commercial real estate uh, indices that that drive the models there more so. Um, So, you know, different factors driving different parts of our our portfolio. Um, Credit quality will drive that. So we see deterioration in our credit quality. We'll we'll see an impact there. Um, But as I said earlier in the comments, uh, you know, growth is what drove it on one side this quarter and some of the macro um, changes we made this quarter drove it. Uh, credit quality this quarter, for example, wasn't really a, a contributor to the overall allowance.
10: Okay. Thank you, Graham.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Surabhavahedi with BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
7: Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Neil. I'm, I'm sorry if you mentioned this and I, and I missed it, but can you just provide a little bit of uh, additional detail as to geographically where the, where the uh, mortgage growth is coming from? and 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 when you share the statistics around i think Dave may have mentioned it around how many new customers you're picking up is is this is this a measure against that in other words are you picking up new mortgage customers and it's counting towards your i think goal of getting to around 2.3 million net new customers by 2023 thanks
0: sure uh thanks for the question um mortgage growth uh, really being driven out of sort of the um, eastern part of the country, so Ontario being the strongest, we're seeing uh, really strong performance around the Toronto, um, the GTA, southwestern Ontario, uh, strong housing markets in places like Hamilton have been um, have been very supportive, uh, and then in Quebec we've well, we have a very we're the number three player in Quebec. We've got a strong footprint there, and uh, you know well well described as the uh, strong housing market in Montreal. So. Those would be the fastest-growing uh, regions in the portfolio. We, we have seen B.C. Um, start to pick up as that market start to recover from, um, from the price, price corrections we saw uh, a little over a year ago. In terms of um, – sorry, the second part of your question oh, was around new clients. Um, in terms of new clients, um, I guess a couple of comments we'd make, uh, building on Dave's commentary. You know, we, we set out a plan to get to the targets that we laid out for 2023. We have a, an action plan in place. Um, so we're, we're feeling confident about the plan. Um, we're up about 10% in terms of new client origination. And specifically, your question around is, you know, is, mortgage, is new mortgage clients part of it? It is. But the primary, uh, you know, sort of first products we're onboarding clients into would be the core checking account uh, as well as a credit card. So those would be the two largest, but absolutely, you know, new, new mortgage clients would go into those totals.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead.
8: Uh, good morning. Um, maybe just switching to the U.S. side, uh, call that mortgage growth up
4: 24% year-over-year. Year. Um, is, is that driven by kind of core city so national bank um, in terms of its core, core location uh, or is it kind of uh, 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 you know, new branches or, or is it just the U.S. housing fundamentals are, are picking up momentum as well?
2: Our our growth is is across our markets. Our our core market of uh, Los Angeles and California in general continues to perform very well when you look at MSAs. We are growing the number of branches we have in New York, and it's become a core kind of lead product to acquire client relationships. Similarly, in, in our other cities that we've expanded to, and that was part of the strategy that we articulated from day one, as we could accelerate our expansion and our break-even expansion by bringing new products to bear. So this is part of the strategy we've been talking about for, for four years. It's fantastic to see the team execute it. We've spent a significant amount of time building the back office to handle this type of volume growth and to deliver an exceptional experience and a, and a quality experience for our clients. And uh, you know, you're know, you acquiring a, a lower risk customer. So this is, you know exactly what we're looking for and how we want to grow the bank. We're adding new branches in uh, New York City this year and into next year, including into Hudson Yards, and this will be a core part of the growth strategy for our business. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Mike Vizanovic with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead.
7: Hi, good morning. I just wanted to go back to the margin guidance for Canadian banking. And I think the guidance was for three to five basis points of, of further compression potentially if we see the same sort of trends. Uh, would that incorporate not just the competition that was cited, um, but, but also low mix?
3: Yeah, it's Rod. Right. It, it, it factors in the pricing competition. It factors in uh, what we're seeing out of the Bank of Canada in terms of the, f- the forward uh, rate curve. Um, as well as as product mix. And so, you know, similar to a year ago when in the kind of the the fall-winter season, fixed-rate mortgage spreads kind of came to a low point. Uh, They rebounded a bit last year in December and then into January and into the spring season. This year uh, that that rebound uh, was delayed. It didn't happen until January, but we've seen that those spreads rebound uh, in January and again in February, um, so we would expect that to hopefully continue. Again, it's a, it's a dynamic marketplace. Uh, so yes, you have mix, you have the markets, uh, and you have um, uh, competitive pricing pressure. And, and competitive pricing pressure has been the biggest driver of the last two quarters decreases. And uh, what we're seeing in the marketplace right now is for that to abate somewhat uh, for the rest of the year.
7: Okay, so so that that does incorporate some sort of spread pickup. Uh, I'm just looking at what's happened the last two quarters, and and you've had about an eight basis point decline. So, is it fair to say you're expecting a little bit of improvement in the actual spread relative to where it was, um, or or some some something to mitigate what what we've seen the last two quarters? I guess what I'm getting at.
3: Well, what you're seeing the last two quarters uh, in Q4, you saw a mix. So. That was mix and and pricing competition, so that was a combination of the GIC uh, growth and the mortgage growth being the predominance of our volume growth in Q4, which are lower spread products, so that's a mix issue. You also saw some of the uh, fall and into winter season spread compression that we've seen the last two years on the mortgage side, so that was the predominance of the four basis points in Q4 this quarter. It is, the again, the weakness in the marketplace from a, a pricing uh, perspective on the mortgage side is the, per, is the primary factor this quarter. And now that we're seeing spreads normalize a bit, as we saw in January and into February, as well as last year, uh, we expect that impact to moderate, similar to what we saw last year. Last year, rates were still going up, so you didn't actually see all of this uh, because you, you, you thought rates were going up last year. Uh, but now that rates are coming down, we're, we're, this, is, this is more dynamic in what you're seeing. But we don't expect that four basis points each quarter to continue. You know, in fact, we, we think it's going to be the three to five basis points the rest of the way.
7: Okay, that's very helpful. Thanks very much for that.
1: Thank you. Our next question is from Nigel D'Souza with Veritas Investment Research. Please go ahead.
9: Thank you. Uh, good morning. If I could point you to slide or page 16 of your presentation slide. Um, So, you mentioned, Graham mentioned uh, weakness in your unsecured retail portfolios. And uh, when I'm looking at your personal lending 90-day delinquency rate, it's it's relatively stable along with uh, PCL, so I'm wondering if you could provide some color first on what's driving that stability, um, given also a lower mix of HELOCs in that lending bucket, and then second on credit cards. Uh, there's a sizable increase quarter-over-quarter quarter in your 90-day delinquency rate. I'm wondering if you could uh, provide some insights on to how much of that is being driven by the rule change you noted in Quebec, and also when we look at the PCLs and write-off rates for credit cards. They're actually down sequentially, so um, could you provide some color on what's driving that divergence there between delinquencies and uh, PCLs and write-offs?
5: The, yeah, so this is Graham. Maybe I'll address that. I, mean, I guess I would just be reiterating some of the comments I think we, uh, I made in my speech earlier that uh, <clears throat> you know, the two main effects we're, we're seeing um, are one in, in Quebec specifically is the impact of the, uh, the change in the minimum uh, card payment amount. Um, and so that's translating through both uh, uniquely to credit cards there, um, but is also impacting overall uh, um, insolvencies in the form of consumer proposals. Um, and as I said earlier, the, the personal lending um, we see, you know, Alberta influencing that in part, um, and, and that's just the weakness in the Alberta situation there. Um, and then additionally, uh, you know, we are seeing rising uh, insolvencies and in, in consumer proposals uh, more broadly than that. Um, you know, that's I think driven by a few things outside of Alberta where say in Toronto, we've got a very strong employment situation in Toronto, but you are seeing a rising cost of living. There's a latent effect associated with rising rates from 2018. Um, and then more recently, you'd see rising uh, rental costs that are influencing the cost of living for, for clients um, that despite strong employment uh, is, is trickling through into the personal lending piece. Um, so those are some of the factors that, uh, that, that we're seeing. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll, I'll uh, you know, Neil might have some comments here just on the growth side that could be influencing that as well.
0: Yeah. Then one other thing I would just add to, to Graham's uh, comments on the personal lending. We talked in previous calls. Uh, that was a portfolio that was you know flat to uh, actually had negative growth, and that's returned to about a three percent growth. So you're starting to see kind of just the denominator effect of uh, of growth um, on the on the PCL as well. And then the credit card book, I mean, just seasonality is one of the biggest drivers there. And Graham mentioned that in his comments. You know, coming off the holiday season, um, you know, very predictable.
3: And it's Rod, I'm just gonna give you for what it's worth in Q one of sixteen, in Q one of seventeen, and in Q one of eighteen, uh the the nine days past due for credit cards was eighty basis points uh each quarter. So very similar to what we're seeing today, I think what you saw last year in Q one was was more of a cyclical low.
9: Okay, that's really helpful. Appreciate the caller. Thanks. Okay, well if I to take one,
2: maybe two more. I think there's a couple in the queue, so try to answer quickly and ask quickly. Next.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Our next question is from Ibrahim Punawala with Bank of America. Merrill Lynch, please go ahead. So we'll make it quick.
6: Uh, just for Graham, uh, following up on credit means I think when you talk to sort of global investors, a lot's made out of the consumer uh, proposals and insolvencies rising. I think you addressed that a little bit in, in some of the questions you've answered. But outside of the coronavirus, outside of the rail strike, just if you can talk about one, should those proposals and the insolvency increase worry your shareholders and investors around uh, sort of um, increasing credit risk around the consumer? Uh, or you think that's kind of a little bit more bouncing of the lows, idiosyncratic in nature? I think that would be helpful.
5: Um, again, I, I just, if we look at our consumer portfolio overall, on the secured products, um, and you know, trends overall are, are very strong. They're very consistent. What we see in our origination is, has been a very consistent profile. When we look at the mix of our, our credit ratings on the consumer books, it's been very consistent um, and the delinquency trends have been strong so. You know, I called out specifically the effects that we're seeing on the unsecured because that's really the one pocket of weakness that we're seeing driven by the rising consumer proposals and the effects that drive those are really the ones we've talked about here. the Weakness in Alberta on one hand, the, def- the minimum payment effect in, in, uh, in, in Quebec, and then, you know, the general cost of living uh, uh, impact elsewhere. And so outside of those, those pieces that we've called out, again, I would say the consumer portfolio has been a very, very stable credit profile for us um, we have not changed our origination strategies there, and so we've been very persistent and consistent in, in, in what we're bringing in through the front door. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think those are the key messages that I would continue to leave you with on, on the consumer side.
6: And do you think the three things that you pointed out, do they get worse, or do you think that should be relatively stable? Ahead,
2: gonna, we, we
5: have
2: to cut you short there. I'll take one more question. Sorry.
1: Thank you. Our next uh, question is from Steve Theriault with 8 Capital. Please go uh, ahead. I'll
2: back, Steve.
8: Okay. Fire away. Last to question
5: it. to you. I'll
8: keep, I'll keep it quick. Part, part of it was asked and answered. But, Neil, if you could just uh, complete the loop a bit for us on, in terms of some commentary around the, the HELOC versus the, the traditional right. mortgage mix.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, I think Rod actually made a, a touched on it in, in his comments. Um, we have seen – so there, the HELOC book is actually uh, shrinking. We're seeing customers move those into um, fixed-term mortgages you know, partly because I think clients' outlook uh, on rates and, you know, really wanting to have a, a predictable payment. And then also, you know, as they work with our team, you know, if that's the right advice for the clients, you know, there is a, there is Rod touched on, on, uh, on business mix. There is a margin um, reduction we take on that, but we do focus on the client. If, if that's the best advice for the client, then, then that's what we do. And we did see uh, an acceleration of that uh, in Q1 versus our sort of run rate for 2019. Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you. I will now turn the meeting back over to Mr. McKay.
2: So thank you everyone for, uh, for attending today's call and, and for your comments. There, there's a, a couple of themes we really wanted you to take away from uh, today's results and, and, uh, and call that we just uh, finished. And, and that is around strong volumes across all our core franchises. You look at what's the capital markets, Uh, results out of our global markets business, out of our investment banking business. You look at our Canadian banking franchise from mortgages to cards to commercial. You look at the wealth management results, which no one in Canada, which no one asked about, but, you know, generating great, great core volume, great share gains, uh, very strong results there that we didn't touch on in any of the questions. You look at the city national volumes, just pushing 20% from both deposits and landing, you'll get strong insurance results. So it really talks to core momentum from the investments we've made in capacity in digital capabilities and investing in in value for our customers have really delivered core volume growth. We've done all of that while maintaining high ROEs. So there's a lot of questions about margin, but at the end of the day, we drove 17.5% ROEs on a 12% CT1 base. It talks to the returns we're getting off of the business we're booking, the cross-sell ratios we're getting, all done within uh, a consistent credit appetite. So we feel very good about our start to the year. Thank you for your questions. We look forward to speaking with you uh, in Q two.
1: Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please connect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation.